are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. I'm Deborah Taylor, coordinator of school and student services here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And well, thank you. It's nice to have a cheering squad, right? And uh, we are so delighted to welcome you. Um, you couldn't be in a better place on a rainy night um, than to hear an outstanding writer and to have the opportunity to um, fellowship with other folks who love good writing. Colson Whitehead was raised in Manhattan and after graduating from Harvard, started working at the Village Voice, where he wrote reviews of television, books, and music. His first novel, The Intuitionist, was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway and winner of the Quality Paperback Book Club's New Voices Award. He continued to write highly acclaimed novels and essays. His novel, Zone One, about post-apocalyptic New York City, was a New York Times bestseller. Its reviews, essays, and fiction have appeared in a number of publications such as the New York Times, the New Yorker, New York Magazine, uh, Harper's, and Granta. He has received a MacArthur Fellowship, Genuine Genius, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Writers Award, and a fellowship at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers. However, there is nothing like getting the nod from Oprah to send a writer's work to another level in popularity. But even before that recognition, the Underground Railroad was already receiving great response. Indeed, our resident genius, Judy Cooper, had already lined up tonight's program based on that early terrific buzz. The New York Times Review said, in its exploration of the foundational sins of America, it is a brave and necessary book. It's an incredible page turner and compelling read giving us one of fiction's great characters and Cora on one of fiction's great narrative journeys. Please join me in welcoming Colson Whitehead. Howdy, thanks for coming out tonight. Um, A lot of great stuff has happened with the book since it came out. Um, hit a bestseller list. Oprah endorsed it. Obama took it on his uh, summer reading. But this is my first uh, reading in Baltimore, so I think I've really arrived tonight. <laughs> pander, pander. Um, so I first came up with the idea for the book uh, 16 years ago. I was um, sitting on my couch and came across a reference to to the Underground Railroad and remembered how when I first heard about it when I was in fourth grade, um, I pictured a literal railroad subway beneath the earth, which is highly impractical, and my teacher, you know, quickly disabused me of that uh, uh, information. But But I thought, wouldn't it be cool if it actually was true and that'd be a cool premise for a novel? And then, uh, that's a premise, not much of a story there, so I quickly added the idea that uh, each state 
our protagonist goes through as she moves north, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, is a different state. Uh, is a different state of alternative America, uh, where we see what might have been, what could be, and um, uh, it seemed like a really good idea <coughs> at the time. I knew if I tried it then, I would fuck it up, and so I decided not to do it then. And maybe if I wrote a few more books, I'd become a better writer. If I um, traveled the world like Hemingway and kind of butched it up, I might become more wise, work in a tramp steamer, get into a fight with a hobo or something. And then um, each time I finished a book, I would pull up my notes and think, am I ready? And then the answer was always no. And then two and a half years ago, I sold a, a book to my editor, an idea, but I wasn't sure, I didn't, I didn't feel totally right about it, so I told my wife about the Underground Railroad idea in a marriage. Sometimes you have to make conversation, uh, kill, <laughs> kill the silences. And um, so she said, I don't want to say that your idea for a book about a Brooklyn writer going through a midlife crisis is dumb per se, but this Underground Railroad book sounds pretty good. Um, so that was one vote. And then I uh, talked to my agent. I said, I have this one idea and this other idea. What do you think? And I've worked with her for 18 years, and she's always supportive. So she just said, both ideas sound good. Um, then she did something she never does, which was email me on a Sunday. And if you get an email from your agent on a Sunday, it means you've probably messed something up. Uh, but in this case, she said, the Underground Railroad idea sounds pretty good. So I was like, huh? And then Wednesday came around, and Wednesday is shrink day. So I told my shrink um, about the idea. And she said, what are you, crazy? Um, well, I mean, we both know you're crazy, but um, this book sounds totally up your alley. So I left one person, my editor, uh, Bill Thomas, who I've known for a very long time. And I told him the idea, and he just said, Giddy up, motherfucker, which is publishing for that's a very good idea and we should pursue it. <laughs> um, so I did. So in this first section, uh, we meet Cora. Cora is 17 or 18. Uh, she's on a plantation in Georgia. She's not sure how old she is because slave masters didn't keep track of how old their slaves were. Um, in the same way you might have a dog named Fido and know that he, he's seven or eight you might not know his exact birthday because he's a pet and an object and not a person. So slave masters didn't keep track of their slaves' birthdays. Uh, the plantation is owned by James and Terence Randall. Um, a new addition to the plantation is Caesar. Caesar was raised on a plantation in Virginia and was told his, on a small family farm, and was told his whole life that when his owner died, he'd be set free. And she taught him how to read and filled him with stories of what a, a free black person could do. She dies and her heirs um, have no intention of following her wishes and he's sold down south with his parents and the furniture and all the other possessions in the house, the couch, along with the other property. 
And he comes to Randall, which is a much more brutal system than he's uh, acquainted with. Uh, it's old Jockey's birthday. Old Jockey is the oldest slave on the plantation, and whenever he senses a need in the community, he declares it his birthday, and they have, it could be once a year, twice a year, and they have food and dancing, and it's a, a brief celebration of life in the plantation hell. And then finally there's Chester, who's 10 years old, also an orphan like Cora, a stray, and uh, Cora has taken him under her wing. The music stopped. The circle broke. Sometimes a slave will be lost in a brief eddy of liberation, in the sway of a sudden reverie among the furrows or while untangling the mysteries of an early morning dream, in the middle of a song on a warm Sunday night. Then it comes, always, the overseer's cry, the call to work, the shadow of the master, the reminder that she's only a human being for a tiny moment across the eternity of her servitude. The Randall brothers had emerged from the great house and were among them. The slaves stepped aside, making calculations of what distance represented the right proportion of fear and respect. <clears throat> Godfrey, James's houseboy, held up a lantern. According to old jockey, James favored the mother, stout as a barrel and just as firm in countenance, and Terence took after the father, tall and owl-faced, perpetually on the verge of swooping down on prey. In addition to the land, they inherited their father's tailor, who arrived once a month in his rickety carriage with his samples of linen and cotton. The brothers dressed alike when they were children and continued to do so when they were in manhood. Their white trousers and shirts were as white as the laundry girl's hands could make them, and the orange glow of the lantern made the men look like ghosts emerging from the dark. Master James, Jockey said, his good hand gripped the arm of his chair as if to rise. Master Terence. Don't let us disturb you, Terence said. My brother and I were discussing business and heard the music. I told him, <coughs> Now that is the most god-awful racket I've ever heard. The Randalls were drinking wine out of goblets of cut glass and looked as if they'd drained a few bottles. Cora searched for Caesar's face in the crowd. She did not find him. He hadn't been present the last time the brothers appeared together on the northern half. You did well to remember the different lessons of those occasions. Something always happened when the Randalls ventured together into the quarter, sooner or later. A new thing coming you couldn't predict until it was upon you. James left the daily operations to his man Connolly and rarely visited. He might grant a tour to a visitor, a distinguished neighbor, or a curious planter, from another neck of the woods, but it was rare. James, <coughs> sorry, James rarely addressed his niggers, who'd been taught by the lash to keep working and ignore his presence. When Terence appeared in his brother's half of the plantation, he usually praised each slave and made a note of which men were the most able and which women the most appealing. Content to leer at his brother's women, he grazed heartily upon the women of his own half. 
I like to taste my plums, Terence said, prowling the rows of cabins to see what struck his fancy. He violated the bonds of affection, sometimes visiting slaves on their wedding night to show the husband the proper way to discharge his marital duty. He tasted his plums and broke the skin and left his mark. It was accepted that James was of a different orientation. To hear his valet prideful tell it, James confined his erotic energies to specialized rooms in a New Orleans establishment. The madam was broad-minded and modern, adept in the trajectories of human desire. Prideful stories were hard to believe, despite assurances that he received his reports from the staff of the place, with whom he'd grown close over the years. After all, what kind of white man would willingly submit to the whip? Terence scratched his name in his cane in the dirt. It had been his father's cane, topped with the silver, silver wolf's head. Many remembered its bite on their flesh. Terence said, Then I recollected James telling me about a nigger he had down here could recite the Declaration of Independence. I can't bring myself to believe him. I thought perhaps tonight he can show me, since everyone is out and about from the sound of it. We'll settle it, James said. Where is that boy, Michael? No one said anything. Godfrey waved the lantern around pathetically. Moses was the boss unfortunate enough to stand closest to the Randall brothers. He cleared his throat. Michael dead, Master James. Michael, the slave in question, had indeed possessed the ability to recite long passages. According to Connolly, who heard the story from the nigger trader, Michael's former master was fascinated by the abilities of South American parrots and reasoned that if a bird could be taught limericks, a slave might be taught to remember as well. Merely glancing at the size of their skulls told you that a nigger possessed a bigger brain than a bird. Michael had been the son of his master's coachman, had a brand of animal cleverness, the kind you see in pigs sometimes. The master and his unlikely pupil starred with simple rhymes and short passages from popular British versifiers. They went slow over the words the nigger didn't understand, and, if truth be told, the master only half understood. But they made miracles, the tobacco farmer and and the coachman's son. The Declaration of Independence was their masterpiece. Michael's ability never amounted to more than a parlor trick, delighting visitors before the discussion turned, as it always did, to the distinct diminished faculties of niggers. His owner grew bored and sold the boy south. By the time Michael got to Randall, some torture or punishment had addled his senses. He was a mediocre worker. He complained of noises and black spells that blotted his memory. In exasperation, Connolly beat out what little brains the man had left. It was a scourging that Michael was not meant to survive, and it it achieved its purpose. James said, I should have been told his displeasure plain. Michael's recitation had been a novel diversion the two times he trotted the nigger out for guests. Terence liked to tease his brother. James, he said, you need to keep better account of your property. Don't meddle. 
Terence continued. I knew you let your slaves have rebels, but I had no idea they were so extravagant. Are you trying to make me look bad? Don't pretend you care what a nigger thinks about you, Terence, James said. His glass was empty. He turned to go. <clears throat> oh, one more song, James. These sounds have grown on me. George and Wesley, the musicians, were forlorn. Noble and his tambourine were nowhere to be seen. James pressed his lips into a slit. He gestured, and the men started playing. Terence tapped his cane. His face sank as he took in the crowd. You're not going to dance? I must insist. You and you and you. They didn't wait for their master's signal. The slaves of the northern half converged on the alley, haltingly, trying to insinuate themselves into the previous rhythm and put on a show. Putting on a show for master was a familiar skill, the small angles and advantages of the mask, and they shook off their fear as they settled into the performance. Oh, how they capered and hollered, shouted and hopped. Certainly this was the most lively song they'd ever heard. The, musici the musicians, the most accomplished players the colored race had to offer. Cora dragged herself into the circle, checking the Randall brothers' reactions on every turn like everyone else. Jockey tumbled his hands in his lap to keep time. Cora, sounds, Cora found Caesar's face. He stood in the shadow of the kitchen, his expression flat. Then he withdrew. You! It was Terence. He held his hand before him as if it were covered in some eternal stain that only he could see. Then Cora caught sight of it. The single drop of red wine staining the cuff of his lovely white shirt. Chester, the boy, had bumped him. Chester simpered and bowed before the white man. Sorry, master, sorry, master. The cane crashed, crashed across his shoulder and head again and again. The boy screamed and shrank to the dirt as the blows continued. Terence's arm rose and fell. James looked tired. One drop. A feeling settled over Cora. She'd not been under its spell in years since she brought the hatchet down on Blake's doghouse and sent the splinters into the air. She'd seen men hung from trees and left for buzzards and crows. Women carved open to the bones with the cat of nine tails. Feet cut off to prevent escape and hands cut off to stop theft. She'd seen boys and girls younger than this beaten and had done nothing. But this night the feeling settled on her heart again. It grabbed hold of her and before the slave part of her caught up with the human part of her, she bent over the boy's body as a shield. She held, she held the cane in her hand like a swamp man handling a snake and saw the ornament at its tip. <clears throat> the silver wolf bared its silver teeth. Then the cane was out of her hand. It came down in her head. It crashed down again, and this time the silver teeth ripped across her eyes and her blood splattered the dirt.
Someone else hearing that? Or just like the, the ghost of the library? Yeah. That's it for that section. Um, uh, things... So understandably, when Cora stands up, things deteriorate on the plantation, and um, she decides to go with Caesar on the Underground Railroad. And in this end, that means she's pursued by her master and slave catchers. And Arnold Ridgway is the single-minded person after her, and this is his story. Arnold Ridgway's father was a blacksmith. The sunset glow of molten iron bewitched him, the way the color emerged in the stock slow <coughs> and then fast, the way the color emerged in the slock slow and then slow and then fast, overtaking it like an emotion, the sudden pliability and restless writhing of the thing as it waited for purpose. His forge was a window into the primitive energies of the world. His father had a saloon partner named Tom Bird, a half-breed who took a sentimental turn when lubricated by whiskey. On nights when Tom Bird felt separate from his life's design, he shared stories of the Great Spirit. The Great Spirit lived in all things, the earth, the sky, the animals, and forests, flowing through and connecting them in a divine thread. Although Ridgway's father scorned religious talk, Tom Bird's testimony on the Great Spirit reminded him of how he felt about iron. He bent to no god save the glowing iron he tended in his forge. He'd read about the great volcanoes, the lost city of Pompeii, destroyed by fire that poured out of mountains from deep below. Liquid fire was the very blood of the earth. It was his mission to upset mash and draw out the material, the metal, into useful things that made society operate. Nails, horseshoes, plows, knives and guns, chains. Working the spirit, he called it. When permitted, young Ridgway stood in a corner while his father worked Pennsylvania iron, melting, hammering, dancing around his anvil, sweat dripping down his face, covered in soot, foot to crown, blacker than an African devil. You gotta work that spirit, boy, he'd say. One day his son would find his spirit, his father told him. Ridgway was 14 when he took up with the slave patrollers. Slave patrol was not difficult work. They stopped any niggers they saw and demanded their passes. They stopped niggers they knew to be free for their amusement, but also to remind the Africans of the forces arrayed, arrayed against them, whether they were owned by a white man or not. Made the rounds of the slave villages in search of anything amiss, a smile or a book. They flogged the wayward niggers before bringing them to jail or directly to their owner if they were in the mood and it was not too close to quitting time. News of a runaway sent them into cheerful activity. They raided the plantations after their quarry, inter interrogating a host of quivering darkies. Freemen knew it was coming and hid their valuables and moaned when the white men smashed their furniture and glass, praying that they confined their damage to objects. 
There were perquisites, apart from the thrill of shaming a man in front of his family or roughing up an unseasoned buck who squinted at you the wrong way. The old Mutter farm, for example, had the comeliest colored wenches. Mr. Mutter had a taste. And the excitement of the hunt put a young patroller in a lusty mood. According to some, the backwoods stills of the old man on the stone plantation produced the best corn whiskey in the county, and a roust allowed Ridgway to replenish his jars. Ridgway commanded his appetites in those days, withdrawing before his Confederates more egregious displays. <coughs> the other patrollers were boys and men's, men of bad character. The work attracted a type. In another country, they would have been criminals, but this was America. He liked the night work best when they lay in wait for a buck who sneaked through the woods to visit his life, his wife on the plantation up the road, or a squirrel, hunt, squirrel hunter looking to supplement his daily meal of slop. Other patrollers carried guns and eagerly cut down any rascal dumb enough to flee, but not Ridgeway. Nature had equipped him with weapons enough. Ridgeway ran them down as if they were rabbits, and then his fists subdued them. Beat them for being out, beat them for running, even though the chase was the only remedy for his restlessness. Charging through the dark, branches lashing his face, stumps sending him ass over elbow before he got up again. In the chase, his blood sang and glowed. And he moves up from being a slave patroller to a slave catcher, moving out of state to retrieve fugitives. <coughs> New York was the start of a wild time. Ridgeway worked retrieval, heading north when Constable sent word that they'd captured a runaway from Virginia or North Carolina. New York became a frequent destination, and after exploring new aspects of his character, Ridgeway picked up stakes. The fugitive trade back home was straightforward, knocking heads. Up north, the gargantuan metropolis, the liberty movement, and the ingenuity of the colored community all converged to portray the true scale of the hunt. He was a quick study. It was more like remembering than learning. Sympathizers and mercenary captains smuggled fugitives into the city ports. And in turn, stevedores and dockhands and clerks furnished Ridgeway with information, and he scooped up the rascals on the threshold of deliverance. Free men informed on their African brothers and sisters, <coughs> comparing the descriptions of runaways and gazettes with the furtive creatures slinking around the colored churches, saloons, and meeting houses. He fell in with a circle of slave catchers, guerrillas stuffed into black suits with ridiculous derbies. He had to prove he was not a bumpkin, but just once. Together they shadowed runaways for days, hiding outside places of work until opportunity announced itself, breaking into their Negro hovels at night to, to kidnap them. After years away from the plantation, after taking a wife and starting a family, they had convinced themselves that they were free as if owners forgot about property. Their delusions made them easy prey. He snubbed the blackbirders, the Five Points gangs who hogtied freemen and dragged them south for auction. That was low behavior, patroller behavior. 
He was a slave catcher now. While Ridgeway waited at the docks for smugglers, the magnificent ships from Europe dropped anchor and discharged their passengers. Everything they owned in sacks, half-starving, hapless as niggers by any measure. But they'd be called to their proper places, as he had been. His whole world growing up in the South was a ripple of this first immigrant arrival. This dirty white flood with nowhere to go but out, south, to the west. The same laws governed garbage and people. The gutters of the city overflowed with refuse, but the mess found its place in time. He watched them stagger down the gangplanks, roomy and bewildered, overcome by the city. The possibilities lay before these pilgrims like a banquet, and they'd been so hungry their whole lives. They'd never seen the likes of this, but they'd leave their mark on this new land as surely as those famous souls at Jamestown, making it theirs through unstoppable racial logic. If niggers were supposed to have their freedom, they wouldn't be in chains. If the red man was supposed to keep hold of his land, it would still be his. If the white man wasn't destined to take this new world, he wouldn't own it now. Here was the true great spirit, the divine thread connecting all human endeavor. If you can keep it, it's yours. Your property, slave or continent, the American imperative. Ridgeway grew famous with his facility for ensuring that property remained property. When a runaway took off down an alley, he knew where the man was headed, the direction and aim. His trick, don't speculate on where the slave is headed next. Concentrate instead on the idea that he's running away from you, not from a cruel master or the vast agency of bondage, but you specifically. It worked again and again, his own iron fact, in alleys and pine barrens and swamps. He finally left his father behind and the burden of that man's philosophy. Ridgeway was not working the spirit. He was not the smith rendering order, not the hammer, not the anvil. He was the heat. Thank you. So if there are any questions or tips, there's a, a young person with a microphone. Yes, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, great book. Uh, my name is Travis. I'm a law student. And I was wondering, um, I believe slavery hasn't ended. It just has a new name, uh, cheap labor in jail, legal lynching by a cop, poverty which leads to hopelessness is the new Jim Crow. How should white people use their white privilege in a racist white supremacist society? Um, I agree with all the statements you just made. Um, However, your question I can't answer. I write books, 
and uh, hopefully uh, my novel, if you come to it and enjoy it, can make you think about uh, how the concept of race has changed over time and how it hasn't changed and how most of the things you said in that opening statement are true. Um, but I don't, I'm not in the solutions business. Uh, my brand is novel. So. So the question was about my research pro uh, process. Um, I'm, I'm a very lazy person, uh, and luckily all the historical materials I needed uh, are in the public domain, and um, the famous slave narratives uh, by Frederick Douglass, Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs uh, wrote a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. She was ran away from her master, um, in North Carolina and then hid in an attic for seven years until she could get passage out. And if you've read the book, you know that there's sort of echoes of that in the North Carolina section. And then my biggest resource, uh, public domain owned by the government, i.e. you, the American taxpayer, were the um, oral narratives collected by the Works Progress Projects Administration in the 1930s. Um, they sent out writers, Great Depression sent out writers to interview former slaves, um, <clears throat> people who were kids or teenagers at the time of the Civil War, to collect their stories. And some of them are just two paragraph accounts of working on a farm. Some of them are about working in the house. Some of them are about, uh, you know, brief bi uh, biographical accounts. But they gave me um, an acquaintance with a great variety of slave experience. You could be uh, a single slave working in a house in a town in a townhouse in Baltimore. You could be one of three slaves working on a small Virginia farm. Or you could be in that plantation we know from pop culture, the hundred person uh, plantation in the in the deep south in, in Georgia with the uh, it's called Tara and Scarlett O'Hara is running around complaining. Um, but as, you know, in trying to create the historical details, um, I got a lot of nouns and adjectives from uh, those first-person accounts. What, do you, uh, what are your shoes made out of? What are their beds like? What are the cabins? What are the cabin arrangements? Um, what days do you have off? Some people had Sunday off. Some people had half of Sunday off. Um, so all the sort of nitty-gritty details that, you know, hopefully build a realistic plantation in that first section. There's someone with a microphone, but I'm able to still get you after this. So there's some of them. Did you have parts of your book when you said, eh, should I write this? Should I go this way? Well, I mean, once I committed to the book, uh, I was all in, so I had no choice. Um, so um, the more research I, research I did and coming to the reality of slavery in my mid-40s as opposed to like Eight when I saw Roots with my family, or in college when I studied it, um, uh, was deeply horrifying. And you know, I've, I've children, I've kids now, and the thought of them seeing me or, or their mother beaten, uh, raped, tortured, punished, or seeing them raped, tortured, punished uh, was incredibly horrifying. And so, stealing myself and getting ready to um, put my characters through this. Uh, was horrifying. Once I started writing, I found the necessary distance where you're in the 
you're in the scene with them because you have to be to uh, uh, have empathy and animate the characters, but also that distance where you're stepping back to shape the material as an artist. And so you're in there feeling the emotions or making the emotions vivid, the situations alive, but you also have to stay back, stay back and say, is this paragraph working? Am I pacing the story right? Or am I developing the characters correctly? So once I started writing, it was okay, and I could stop work at 3 p.m. and go to the web and figure out what I'm going to make for dinner for my family. Is it, we've had steak three days in a row. Should I make some chicken, edamame, and then make dinner? And so hanging out with them at the end of the day uh, brought me out of the work. And then I would go back the next morning. So. I guess there's a question here. If the, someone's uh, I'd like to ask, um, I've read Zone 1, and now we have the Underground Railroad, and the transition from Road 1, and then there was the book on poker. On poker, yes. Um, I love this book. It's very powerful. Obviously, you really... Um, did your homework because it reminded me of some of Toni Morrison's uh, journeys through slavery and um, thank you for coming to Baltimore I've seen you many times in D.C. No, I recognize you, yeah, it's good to see you again Okay and it's good to see you here and I think I first started reading your your, uh, books with The Intuitionist which is terrific and it has a female character who is uh, important. So I enjoyed this book. It's very painful. And it's, well, I hope you get a National Book Award for it because well, that's how I feel. That's very nice of you to say. But, yeah. No, thanks for coming all these years. I mean, uh, you know, when you, you travel, um, get up at five to go on a plane to a new city. Um, this is actually the Amtrak part of the tour, so it's not that bad, but normally you get up at five, go to the airport, and then you do interviews, and then um, you're really exhausted and, and talked out. And then the best part of the night is uh, when you do reading in a bookstore or, or a library, and um, people have taken time out of their lives to you know, hear you talk about your work. They've paid some money to buy the book. It's raining, and they still come out, and so... Um, uh, Thanks again to all of you and, and to you. I've seen you at a couple of readings, so it's good to see you again. Hi. Um, there's been so many books, so many stories, movies about slavery, about the Underground Railroad and scenarios. And I just wanted to know, like, from your perspective, like, what is different from your thoughts from what everybody else is kind of, like, saying the same like, what, what should we really get out of it different from what the others? Um, I, I can't say because I haven't actually read or seen most of those. Like, people are like, there's so many slave stories out. I'm like, I don't know. I haven't read them. You know, I'm not, it's not my area of expertise. Um, I think if the book sounds interesting and the premise and the way I'm approaching it sounds good, you should, you should read it. Um, uh, the, the previous questioner mentioned... Tony Morrison, Beloved, and um, so I'll answer this question as a writer. Uh, when I was figuring out how to find a language for the book, I was like, oh, 
I'll read Beloved again, haven't read in 30 years. I'll read The Known World by Edward Jones. And I'll see how they dealt with it. And um, to see what to do, what not to do, whatever. And I read 30 pages of Beloved, and I was like, fuck, I'm totally screwed. Tony Morrison is a freaking genius, Nobel Prize winner. You can't compete with that. So um, all I can do is what I do with every book is hope that I have something to contribute in my own personal perspective. People have been writing about slavery. People have been writing about uh, families and war and, and science for decades and centuries and millennia. And um, so, uh, in all likelihood, whatever you're going to write about, someone more talented and smarter has already done it. So all you can do is hope that you have something that's new that you're adding to the conversation. And someone, you know, in terms of the narratives coming out now, there's like a, a Roots reboot. Maybe you just want to watch 10 hours of the Reach, Roots reboot and not read a book. Maybe you want to read a book. Maybe you want to watch Django Unchained, you know. So it's up to you. Whatever, how you want to spend your time is your life. Life is short, so... I, uh, again, thanks for coming to Baltimore, and I look forward to reading your book, and that's my pandering. Um, <laughs> but I'm wondering, the, the issue of cultural appropriation has been brought you know, increasingly to the fore, and it's something that you know, I have been trying to think about a bit. I'm just wondering you know, how, how you view or approach that subject. Can you help me out how I should think about it? I'd appreciate it. Sure, yeah. Um, I have a, a female protagonist. Can I, as a male, write a woman character? Um, I think it's my job to attack the world, and women exist. Uh, without women, this room would be half empty. Um, population would be kind of lower, um, and we'd be self-replicating hermaphrodites or whatever. So, um, so it's my job to animate different kinds of characters, and that includes women. It's crazy. Um, uh, can a white person make a black character, black person make a white character, all these different permutations. If you do it correctly with empathy and intelligence and get away with it, yes. I mean, that's your job. Um, if you screw up, uh, like Lionel Shriver, apparently, people will call you out on it and you got to take your lumps and think about what you did wrong and do better next time. So just, so there's no, um, in terms of the Lionel Shriver, Shriver argument, it seems that she was being really defensive about getting a bad review in the end. And uh, if you do use your powers of empathy and uh, imagination, I think you can pull it off. And you should also be open to being corrected when you do fuck it up. So, I wanted to ask the question, have you talked with Oprah about your book, had a discussion and if you have, can you give us some discussion on what are her favorite parts or what was so powerful about the book for her? Sure. I mean, um, when she picked it, uh, usually, she, you know, she calls you personally, but, but I was traveling, so it didn't work. And so um, I was flying in from a reading at Duke and got a message on my phone from my agent, so I called her. And she just said, Oprah. And I said, shut the front door, because I didn't want to... <laughs> I was on a plane, I didn't want to curse. And then, but you know, does that mean like it's in a magazine or it's a review? And then she said, Oprah's book club. And I said, motherfucker, because that's what I wanted to say. And people were staring at me, I had to apologize because you can't, shouldn't curse on planes. 
Uh, but then I met her a month later and went to her house in Montecito, California, and her compound. And it's um, uh, we filmed an interview in from her pond. She's a pond on her property, and um, so she's very enthousi- enthusiastic about the book. And um, I'm not sure what, I can't remember what her favorite parts were, but. <coughs> You know, she connected with with Cora as people are doing, and I'm really glad that Cora works as a character. Um, and then, uh, when I first started writing, 18 years ago, it was the beginning of the book club and its transformative ripples in the pop culture. And so, whenever I'd be on a plane on book tour, you know, and someone's like, "What do you do?" I'm a writer, and I was like, "Oh, is Oprah picked your book?" And I'm like, "No, thanks for asking." Um, <laughs> And then um, the club was on hiatus, and then, so I, I hadn't thought about her picking it, but it does, you know, I sometimes have oddball premises for my books, and they don't necessarily sound enticing to some people, but her, obviously her endorsement makes people pick it up who normally wouldn't pick up my work, and, and definitely uh, that's happened with this one, and it's opened up a, a real big audience for the book, so I'm really, really glad. Hi, uh, long-time fan, first-time caller. Uh, <laughs> this is, I apologize, I'm sure you've had your fare, going to be one of those questions that's mostly questioned by how I inflect my voice at the end, but um, I hope you can make something of it. Most of your books have appeared to me to just sort of be 300-page metaphors, and this book seems sort of uniquely to be about exactly what it says it's about. And I, I wondered if you could talk about that, if this is something at which you've arrived over time, or maybe if it's not even really a distinction that exists. No, I mean, I think it is, it is, it is, it is different in terms of how to do with metaphor in this book. Um, the Intuitionist is about elevators, and it's using elevation, uplift, to talk about social progress and social, up, social uplift. Um, John Henry Days is comparing the industrial age with the information age. And so in the industrial age part, they're building railroads to connect the city, the country, people move goods across the country, connect the disparate regions into one web. And then the information age part, uh, the information superhighway is otherwise known as the internet now, uh, but it takes place in 96, is knitting people together in a different way and, and bringing society together, the world together, and uh, that connection is a metaphor. With this one, um, uh, I was not very interested in having 10 pages on the tunnel. The tunnel is really, except for the last section, the tunnel is really a portal in between the different states, the different islands that uh, Cora goes through. through. So... (coughs) um, uh, I'm not sure what the overriding metaphor of this book is. Um, uh, I think it's shifting from state to state, and it's not so much animated by an intellectual question like, what if we updated this industrial age myth of John Henry for the information age? Um, it's animated by Cora and uh, different notions of freedom. So... <coughs> I think it works for this book. I'm not sure if it's a new trajectory for me, or um, but I do, I do see how it is different. And even now, I'm not sure if I totally wrapped my head around uh, how it all works in this book. 
but in terms of a central metaphor that mutates and controls a lot of the content of what the characters are going through, um, uh, that's definitely true of definitely uh, a bunch of my books and not so much this one. So, so thanks for reading. Hi there. Um, I'm an English teacher in the city. I first started reading your books in college with Sag Harbor, and I loved it. Um, but my question relates to the inward. I recently did a debate with my students about the inward, and I noticed how searing it is, and you use it regularly in this book. Um, do you have a strong opinion about it being reclaimed or it being kind of like stopped, stopped using it, or do you have any thoughts about that that use of it in your book? Because it's obviously important to the time period, but I'm just th- wondering your thoughts about it. Sure. In terms of the N-word, I mean, uh, I feel like the debate has been going on for like 30 years in my household, among my friends, and the culture, and uh, it comes up. Um, I think, uh, obviously, in terms of historical fiction, uh, it wouldn't be right for sadistic slave master to say, bring me my African-American, and I'm going to whip them. You know, um, in terms of uh, colloquial language, you know, um, uh, we use the words that are right for the occasion, not right for the occasion. Uh, uh, the N-word has been reclaimed, uh, I mean, not even recently, for the last hundred years. And you can, and uh, if you're black, you can use it as a term of endearment, as an epithet, there's all sorts of things coded in, you know, wrapped up in it in the same way that bitch could be used by a woman in a way that a man can't use it, and it's uh, someone who's a jerk, someone who's strong, and, um, but a man can't use it that way, you know, pretty much. So, um, uh, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I think occasionally on Twitter you'll get stuff like, it's Black History Month. When's White History Month? Like, these rappers can say the N-word. Why can't I? And it's like, why do you want to say it? Like, why do you actually want to say it? Uh, do you have any reason that's appropriate why you'd want to say it? Um, and last week, this came up, and someone said, uh, uh, if you want to say it, uh, the question was, do you want to, like, can you say it? Sure. Can you take a punch? Let's find out. You know, it's sort of, uh, what kind of ramifications are you happy with? But, you know, anyway. Hello. Um, I just wanted to say, oh, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. That I really liked, to me it was, you know, because it is slavery times, there's of course, you know, black folks as a tool, not just for labor, but also for body parts, both dead and alive, um, and as entertainment in the museum, which uh, still occurs these days in different ways. Um, Also more violent entertainment, um, even if it's real life. Also the idea of being free, but still confined in the attic hatch, which in some ways, you know, just walking around in America, that's the case. And we're also a source of money for, say, you know, like um, like the maid who who told on her. I'm, I don't know if I'm getting yeah, well, away. Yeah, we'll go into spoilers. Yeah, but. yeah, sorry. Okay, so like a source of money for people who um, are unscrupulous. Um, 
So that could also include people who have historically become part of the like police class and use that as their jobs to join the middle class. And you know, the weekly hanging is entertainment. So you know, the police brutality that some people probably, whenever it pops up and it's videotaped, it, some people probably find entertainment. Or even when we just fight each other and it's on, say, World Star Hip Hop. Well, without talking about more plot points. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Um, but I, I really want to hear your question. I'm really excited. Oh, um, let's see. Uh, I guess the question is, uh, when and where do you most feel free? And what types of resources do you think a child should read so that they have a greater understanding of this history? And also, I think it's great that you can wear your hair the way you want because you don't live in a certain place and you're self-employed, unlike some other people. I think is it in Florida? Yeah. So, in terms of, in terms of the, uh, uh, towards the end there, where do I feel free? Merely just uh, in my house, on my couch, watching uh, Netflix. Uh, there's a show called Peaky Blinders, which is a BBC show. Uh, it's really good. Um, all right, some Peaky Blinders fans in the house. Um, and when I'm just sort of cooking for my family, I feel really free then. In terms of um, <coughs> which books are, are good for acquainting the young folk with this topic, around the corner is the African-American, uh, new African-American room, uh, made possible by... Uh, a generous donation from the Brown family, who I just met uh, this evening. So probably the librarian can help you with that. We have one more question um, in the back, and I just want you all to know, um, after this question, the signing will be in the back behind where Colson is speaking, and you can get books from the Ivy Bookshop at the circulation desk. Thank you. Sorry, this is the last question. <laughs> um, I loved the book. It was compulsively readable, really touched me in a deep way. And uh, as a wa- aspiring writer, I'm trying to get away from saying wannabe, I was just curious if you could talk about like, how you envision your novels and if you work linearly, like if you wrote it all the way through you know, in order or how you see your characters, like how they kind of come about in your world. Sure, thanks, thanks, and good luck with the, with the work. Um, uh, I do a lot of outlining before I, I start. <laughs> so I know the beginning and the end, and the middle can be fuzzy. Uh, but I know, you know, uh, what's going to happen to most people before I start writing, and I know where uh, people are going to be in the last page. Um, I feel that if you don't, it's hard enough to find the right word each day if you also don't know, like, what's going to happen each day, it seems totally impossible. So that's my dorky way of thinking it. So each day when I get up, I have my outline, which changes. You know, it's not rigid, but it's like, introduce Ridgeway, describe Ridgeway's partner, Homer. And so I have a mission each day. Um, because it takes a long time to write a novel, I try to do like eight pages a, a week. And it can be Monday and Tuesday, and then catch up on Sunday. It can be four pages on Monday, and then two on Saturday and two on Sunday, or, you know, but I figure, like, the, the page accumulation helps me and my psyche. Uh, every paragraph, you're closer to the end. I spend most of my life just trying to get closer to the end of something that, that sucks, and, like, writing a novel. So, if, if, you know, if you're writing a page a day, that, that sounds great. In terms of the characters, um, 
I have a vague idea of them before <coughs> before I start, and then they start talking and doing things, and they become more and more real. In terms of, uh, I read a section with Ridgeway, the slave catcher, and I wrote most of the book linearly, but the side chapters that are sort of brief biographical sketches of people like um, Cora's mother, Cora's grandmother, Ridgeway, a doctor. I was thinking about as I was going along and figuring out who deserved uh, their own chapter and where it should go. So the chapter with Caesar, should it go in the beginning, towards the end? What's the, where in the book can I move it around for the best uh, dramatic or thematic payoff? And so, um, so most of the book I was writing straight through. That wasn't, that wasn't always the case, but the last couple books, um, I think in the old days, like, if I got bored of my character, I would like, write something else. And now I'm like, if you're bored with the character, power through. Um, so, uh, but to answer your question, uh, mostly linearly. And then, of course, you move things around as the book gets bigger and bigger and it starts to set its own rules. So, so thanks so much to all you guys for coming out. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.